Welcome to Hope for the Heart. I'm glad you've joined us today as we continue our verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation. I know that I mentioned that last week and got uh, a few people respond to that saying, you mean you're going to cover every single verse? And my goal is to try to cover every single verse. I may not cover them with as much uh, material and time as others, like I'm spending a little bit more time in this introductory material, which basically is chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. This will be my fourth message, and uh, I'm glad you're with us today because we are following through, and I will uh, want to read to you uh, what the passage is uh, that I'll be covering today. It's beginning in or it's the last part of verse 3 of Revelation chapter 1, and goes through verse 6. So let me just read those. You can just listen to this as it uh, gives us the context for where we are seeking to go today with the study. Verse 3 of Revelation chapter 1 says, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom priest, a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, once again, I'm... I'm covering the uh, the book of Revelation, and this is my fourth message, and so I want to cover these few verses uh, before we get into uh, a lot of uh, the rest of chapter 1, which will be verses 9 and following, and then we'll take a look at the seven churches of Asia Minor. And uh, I know it mentions them here, but I'm not going to cover much of that because uh, there is a greater amount of verses later that deal with the seven churches and we'll explain exactly what that means, because that is a point of confusion for so many people. Now, looking at the outline, we're, gonna, we're continuing our outline that we began in the very first message, which was entitled, A Glimpse into the Future. I was going to call all of these A Glimpse into the Future, part one, two, three, and four, but the podcast or sermons won't let you do that because you can't produce them that way by recall because they will only show one. If it all have if four have the same title, then they will only show one. So I had to go back and change the titles, but you can see them there listed on the front page of uh, Hope for the Heart. And uh, so this message today is entitled "For the Time Is Near," or basically I'm going to call it "The Time Is Near." And I want to explain that today in this message somewhat because people look at this, and I've heard a lot of scriptures lately, or or people throwing scriptures at me. That is. A lot of phone calls. I've got a lot of people I know that just really feel that our world has taken a turn and we are very close. And some are fearful that the rapture is coming soon. Some are are anxious and uh, basically are living their life in hope and anticipation that he's coming today or coming soon. And some have even set dates as uh, sometime in May that he could come. Well, the fact is we don't know. And some have even taken this verse today, uh, verse 3 of Revelation chapter 1, the end of it says, For the time is near. 
Well, I want to take a look at that because I want to follow along in the outline. So the outline we've already looked at uh, in, in, in somewhat detail. We've looked at the very first number on the outline, which is number one, the nature of the book. And then we went to the theme of the, the book or the theme of the revelation is, uh, is, is Jesus Christ, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The source is from God, which is number three. Number four are the recipients, uh, or actual, the first recipients are his bondservants. And then number five would be the character, uh, the, uh, the thing which must shortly take place. And we're going to tie that into, for the time is near, in this verse today. And then number six on the outline was the mode. How did this revelation come? It came by an angel. And verse or number seven on the outline, which was the destination. Who did it go to? It went uh, directly to John, the the uh, the uh, apostle. And then number eight was the impact of the book, and that is the blessings that are attached to. And we saw that in verse three: "Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it." Now, spend a little bit of time on that, but today I want to look at number nine on this same outline. And the number nine is the urgency of the revelation. The urgency, and I think we can see that in the last part of verse 3 of Revelation chapter 1. And I've already mentioned this, and it says, for the time is near. Now, I want to look at this in in a way that you can hopefully understand this, because uh, I see this taken so out of context that it's it's just very compelling for me to have to look at this and to uh, help you understand this. This is a, uh, a, I guess would be a compelling thing to look at in this whole introduction, and that is the urgency upon which he is talking about this revelation. You see, the end of verse 3, for the time is near, uh, is is a word to us that can be very confusing because in English... We look at near only pretty much only one way, but in the in the Greek upon which this was written, there are several different words he could have used for the ways we can look at the English word near. <clears throat> the word time, first of all, is basically a word that it means seasons. It doesn't mean uh, what it could mean. It doesn't mean uh, clock time or calendar time. Uh, it's uh, it's the word for seasons. It's the same word that appears in Acts one six, and then then we take you take the word near and put with it. The word near is a word that just simply means uh, what is near as far as redemptive history. And I think I'd be correct in saying this. It's really looking at not what is near or or sudden as much as it is looking at what is next. What is on the horizon, or what is the next thing that would make it an imminent return? You see, chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 6, reiterates this same idea. In verse 6, it reads, of Revelation chapter 22, it says this, And he said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits and the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. Well, there we are. It's the same phrase as that which is, we are saying, that which is near. It's going to happen shortly. In verse 10, chapter 22, it says the time is near again. You see, what the Holy Spirit, I believe, is endeavoring to communicate through John to us, the 
bondservants that he's referred to here, or the church as we're looking at uh, this whole, I mean, we are part of the church, is that from the time written until which we are living right now, we are to live with the fact before us of what is next on God's prophetic calendar. Since we don't know what, when it's going to happen, we have to live as if it were going to happen in the immediate future. This is not a concept unfamiliar uh, to Scripture. God can say, and which he does say, uh, it is near. And yet we look back and you say, well, gosh, this was written 2,000 years ago. How could he mean that, or is this a poor translation? Well, we have to understand that God can say this because on his uh, time clock, it is near. It's, uh, in fact, it, a day is with the Lord a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And so you understand that this might seem like a long time to us, but it's a very brief time to God. And since with him a day is this long, then uh, you might say, well, that's it's only been two days. But and that was from his perspective. But you also could say, well, William, that's just a cop out. I mean, you don't really have an answer, do you? Well, I, I do have an answer. Uh, James 5.8 uses the same word that's used here for near. He says, be patient. Strengthen your hearts. The coming of the Lord is near. The James said it too. Two thousand years have passed. It's still near. In fact, it now it's obviously it's nearer now than it was when James wrote. So Romans sixteen twenty. Do you remember that? This is one of the great promises in Romans sixteen twenty. It says, "The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet." Soon. Well, you say two thousand years have passed. Yeah, but it's next. It's actually next, and yet, even though it's up next, and even though it's near, in Luke 18, 8, Luke 18, we have an interesting note about this. Luke says, in, ver- in cha- Luke uh, chapter 18, verse 7 and 8, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and he will delay long over them. In other words, what Luke is saying in this passage is the godly people are crying about persecution and injustice. Lord, please come. Lord, please come. Lord, please come. In verse 8, Jesus said, I'll tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. There are some concepts here that we that we would have to look at, like the word next, quickly, or soon. And then, however, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith in the earth. What does that actually mean, and how does this tie into Revelation chapter 1, verse 3? Well, it means delay could be so long that people will begin to believe he's not coming, is what that, I think, is actually saying to us in Luke chapter 18. It's near, it's next, but it could be delayed so long people will question whether he's ever going to really come. And I think this is where scoffers really pick up on this idea. Uh, scoffers are those who mock this teaching or say, where, is, as First Peter talks about, where is the promise of his coming? Uh, and and we, we see this with people mocking this. It wasn't but just a matter of a, of a few months, and they were saying uh, these back in the Old T- uh, New Testament times, where is the sign of his coming? He hasn't come. Second Peter says, he, but he is coming. There's no question about it, and his coming is next in redemptive planning. 
And don't you let this one fact escape your notice that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. It's been 2,000 years. That's two days to God. He's coming. But you look at that and you think, well, that doesn't really answer what it could mean for us today. Is he near or is he not near? Well, he is near and it is next. And we are to live as though it could be at any moment. And I'll tell you this, if you back up just a little bit and you look at verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his bondservants the things, here it goes, which must shortly take place. And that is the same idea as verse 3, for the time is near. It doesn't mean it's going to happen quick, like in the next minute or two. But it does mean that it is next, and it also means, and I think I'm not taking any liberties with the text to say this, that when this season actually begins, and we can see it in in chapter 6 of Revelation, that when it actually starts, it moves quickly. And it will move rapidly because you look at all that is going to take place in the seven years, and most of it is contained in a a three-and-a-half-year presentation of it from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 19. And all that's got to take place, all the suffering, the pain, the deaths, all the destruction on planet Earth is going to happen. And so it's going to seem like it is just flying by. And it will be flying by. And I think all of that could be concluded with, with what this is saying here. And it says, according to Luke 18, 7 and 8, I think what he's saying is, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith in the earth. Well, it means that the delay could be so long that people will begin to, to believe he's not coming, but yet there will be people who believe he's coming. The scoffers didn't believe it. But that brings us to the tenth point on this outline. And that is he goes straight into, from verse 3, into a benediction. And this benediction is exciting. Uh, It may not be for you because I know there's several people who have contacted me and they're saying, hurry up and get to the good stuff. Well, uh, the good stuff is all of this stuff. It's all so good. Uh, But the the benediction is interesting because it's wonderful and it's still in the introduction. And so many writers have called this a Trinitarian benediction. It's so overwhelming that there needs to be some note of praise at the very beginning. So we look at this benediction. It comes to us in verses 4, 5, and 6. It takes the great truth of the coming of Christ, uh, presses it up against us as it did in verse 3 with the idea of blessedness. And so I want you to see how this actually begins. Look at verse 4 as we begin this benediction. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. That's Asia Minor. That's modern Turkey. Uh, the seven churches located there in the western half of Asia Minor. They're named in verse 11. We're not going to actually look at them here, but we're going to study them in detail in chapters 2 and 3 and find out exactly why these are given and how we are to look at these seven churches. So we'll take a look at that at, at, a, at a later time, but right now I want you to notice that the standard greeting to them, look at how he says this in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, and here it goes, grace to you and peace. 
And that is the standard greeting. Here comes the unbelievable Trinitarian benediction, as so many writers have said. I can't improve on that, so I'll just say it like they said it. This is God pouring out his love, grace, and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. And that's where I want you to stop right there. I know I read this already, but I wanted to read it again. Because this is the Trinity. This thing begins with an unbelievable benediction of the Trinity, which, uh, which benediction just means blessing. Here comes grace. And here comes peace from all members of the Trinity to the seven churches, the true believers in those seven churches, and all believers today. So all of this is to be received by us as grace and peace being given to us as well. So this could be seen as the love letter. God sending to you his blessing. The Holy Spirit is sending you his blessing. Jesus Christ is sending you his blessing. And remember that this is based on, on chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 3. It says, Blessed is he who reads those who hear and those who heed the things which are written in this book. And so all of this, again, is continuing that promise that Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father are sending us blessings. All three members of the Trinity are sending you grace and are sending you peace. I'll promise you one thing. If they're sending it, it will come. So God is identified first as this first in the Trinity. God is identified from him who is, who was, and who is to come. That's the eternal God. You can compare how Genesis chapter 1 begins and how John the Gospel of John begins in, in chapter 1. And you can begin to see the eternality of God. God is the source of blessings, all grace and all peace. And I can't resist showing you something that I think is, is interesting because this title that he's given us here, who is, who was, and who is to come, is going to change in Revelation chapter 11. Uh, he was, he is, and he is to come, looking at the past, the present, and the future. And the title is used many times in this book, and we're going to see him. Uh, in verse 8, it uses it again, and God is described as the one who is, who was, and is to come. Chapter 4, verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Chapter 11, verse 17 says this, the second part of the verse, We give thanks, thanks to thee, O Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is, who art and who was. What? There's something missing there. And that's the reason I bring this up, because who is to come is not listed there, because the time you get to this part of the chronology of that, he's already come, which means he's not the one who is to come. He has come. Chapter 16, it's not future anymore. Chapter 16, similarly, verse 5, I heard the angel of the writer's, of the water saying, Righteous are you who art, who was, and who, uh, O Holy One. Isn't that great? He's, he's, he's come 
so you don't have to say who is to come anymore. And this is a look at the eternality of God. This is the eternal God who is, and he's sending us grace and peace. Now remember now, everything we know about God, everything we know about information on on this book, which is very prophetic and looking to the future, is here because God decided and chose to give it to us. He has chosen to reveal this to us, given to us by the Holy Spirit, so that we could be blessed and we can have this to read. And there again, it just puzzles me that people in so many pulpits across this country teach you cannot receive it. You cannot read it. You can't understand it. It's mysterious. It's confusing. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it needs to be forgotten. Just don't even teach from it. And I, I just can't go there with that because I just don't see it. So in chapter 16... We don't have any need of to say he is to come because this is the eternal God who is sending us grace and peace. But then John moves to the second member, uh, of the second person of the Trinity, verse 4, and from the second of the seven spirits who are before his throne. And you say, well, the seven spirits doesn't really mean the Holy Spirit does it. Well, this can be a designation of a sevenfold look at the Spirit called the Holy Spirit. Several possible answers to this. One is that seven is the number of fullness or completeness that we looked at last week. Another is back in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it's a wonderful statement about the Holy Spirit. It says this, And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These seven aspects are, are what could be described as the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, strength, knowledge, the Spirit of fear of the Lord, that sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I think this is exactly what he's trying to communicate to us. Uh, It is also possible that Zechariah could be in mind as God gives his greeting to us through this introduction. And that's Zechariah chapter 4. And again, I don't expect you to try to turn to these this quick, just to look at them in general. Uh, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 to 10 is also mentioning this, and I think this, again, it could be a reference to the Holy Spirit. Because right in the middle of that passage is the statement, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. And so I think all of this would cover this. Zechariah talks about the seven lamps, the light of God, and about the seven eyes or the Spirit. And you you see almost the same exact thing. And so I think it refers to the Holy Spirit. And then John moves into the remaining member of the Trinity by giving us grace and peace from Jesus Christ, verse 5. And this, again, is a a wonderful thing. You, you, You look at these descriptions that he's given us by titles, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. What a, what a tremendous description about our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And remember, now, he's the theme of this book. He's the main thrust of all of this. We see Jesus on every page. And so what he's doing is just laying out the foundation for us. And it takes a little bit more time with Christ than he did with the Spirit and with the Father Because after all, Jesus, again, is the theme. He dominates this book. The entire book is a vision of Christ sent to 
these Christians in Asia Minor who were suffering immensely. And again, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But he wants to encourage them. And so his spirit and himself and, and the Father send uh, a greeting of grace and peace to them to encourage them. And who is he? John says, he's, who is just Jesus Christ? He is the faithful witness. Isaiah 55 verse 4 prophesied that the Messiah would be a witness to the people. A faithful witness is one who always speaks the truth and Christ always speaks the truth. In chapter 3 verse 14, he is called the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Again, John chapter 18 verse 37, For this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. That's Jesus speaking. Jesus is sending us his testimony. But the second title he gives him is the firstborn of the dead. What does he mean? Firstborn of the dead means that he is the first one ever to be raised from the dead. No, there's others were raised from the dead before him. But it means that all those who, who were ever raised, he is the preeminent one. He is the firstborn, the preeminent one. All who have ever been raised before or after, he is the preeminent one. And we base that on Psalm 89 Verse 27, I shall make him my firstborn, that is my inheritor. The book, uh, this book of Revelation is a story of that event. The book is a testimony of the faithful witness. The book is the story of God exalting the preeminent one, the chief of all, who has ever been or ever will be raised from the dead. And then he gives him a third title, the ruler of the kings of the earth. The word ruler, it means ruler, and it's some translations say the prince, but the ruler is a more generic term, and it's probably a better term. He will make him ruler of the kings of the earth. In fact, Revelation nineteen sixteen says, he will be king of kings and lord of lords. And what a king he is. Daniel four thirty seven calls him the king of heaven. Matthew 2, 2 calls him the king of the Jews, and we can see this so on and so forth. But now look at these three. Faithful witness speaks to his past, that which God says is the past. He gives a faithful witness, the resurrected Lord. This is the preeminent one, the chief of ever all who have ever been raised in his present role and the ruler of the kings of the earth, his future. So we have the past, present, and the future. His witnesses, he witnesses faithfully to the truth of God. And so his witness is true. It is also true that he will become the ruler because he is chief of all who will ever have been raised. He will become the ruler because he has been a faithful and true witness. This is actually remarkable, which leads us to the last part of this. And I think John actually reads this, and I know you're going to think I'm skipping some of this, but I'm going to come back to it here in just a second. But he goes into number 11, a doxology. And in this doxology, he gives us some tremendous information. It's almost as though John can't contain himself because in these six verses, uh, one th verses uh, one through six, he wraps it up in verse six. To him be the glory and dominion forever. Well, why does he say that? Because of what comes before that, and what comes before that is what you probably thought I was going to skip over, and I'm not skipping it. To him be the glory and dominion forever. And now look at what comes before it. It is the he is the one who loves us, released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. And thus, or therefore, to him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. This is an exalted hymn of praise. 
It is unto him who loves us, present tense. It is the abiding in the present love of Christ. Paul said nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. God is not a past experience. He is a present reality. And his love for us at this present moment is in a full force as if it were Jesus uh, as if it were, we're living in that exact moment of that initial time. He loves us when we were, when we hated him, and he keeps on loving us now that we belong to him. And I say hated us, don't hated him. That means before salvation. So he he loves us before salvation, at salvation, and he continues to love us now. But then it says, released us from our sins by his blood. Blood here is a term. That uh, means death. It was referring to the entire atoning work. And the blood is referred to here because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so it just means a complete atonement, full atonement. And that's what it's referencing here because blood signifies death. And in the case of Christ, the sacrificial substitutionary death for sin. Now, he has saved us, but this looks at a positive on top of that. He has made us to be a kingdom. We are a kingdom of believers in which he rules over us. He loves us so much that he has released us from our sins through his blood. Furthermore, John says he made us priests to his God. The Father, having been released from our sins, we have become a kingdom, a part of the kingdom. We have entered by faith and under his rule. We have become this way because Christ basically chose us to be there with him. What an amazing thing to, to look at this. A priest, we are considered priests. We don't need a priest. I know there's religions out there, and I'm living right here in St. Louis right now ten, uh, temporarily, and I know this is a Catholic town, and I know everywhere in all these Catholic churches, people do not believe what this is actually teaching here. But the scriptures are clear. We have become a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means we, as believers, have a direct access to God. That's what it means. A priest is one who had the right to enter God's presence. In Israel, the priest and the priest alone could go into the holy place, and once a year the high priest into the holy of holies where God was. We now are all priests. That's why we say we believe in the priesthood of believers. We all can enter the holy place. We all have access to God. What a Savior He is. No wonder, John says, to Him who loves us and releases us from our sins by His blood. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Well, what does that mean? The one who has given us all of this has the right to everlasting praise, everlasting glory, everlasting sovereignty. That's what the word dominion actually means. In fact, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse says this, that it would be an eternal injustice if he didn't get the glory and he didn't get the dominion forever and ever. What a wonderful thing. This is. Then he closes with amen. That just simply means let it be. Let it be. And so John concludes his introduction, and so does he. he it's almost like he's going to sweep us right into the future, and then uh, we'll begin looking uh, next week at uh, verses 7 and 8, and then we can get into uh, how he's going to uh, be called up to heaven and what that's going to look like. 
Boy, I hope you're following along. I hope you're reading in the book of Revelation. I hope you're staying in, uh, uh, in tune with this. And I hope you're excited about this. I get excited. Uh, I can't wait to, to go to the next lesson. So I hope that you're listening to these. And uh, send me comments. Send me notices. Uh, because that's always an encouragement to me. And so once again, I want to thank you for joining us today and Hope for the Heart. And keep reading the book of Revelation. And next week we'll look at verses 7 and 8. Thank you.